0: Good evening. Thank you for attending. We will continue to read from Jijiva Goswami's Krishna Sundarbha. 29th Anacheda Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan. The universality of the Bhagavats Parivash, the ruling authority of the Parivash. Jijiva Goswami writes. In this way, it has been concluded that Sri Krishna is Bhagavan, whereas the Purusha, being eminent in all beings, is the Paramatma. A doubt is now raised in this regard. This single statement establishing Krishna as the Amsi is in contradiction with many other statements confirming him as Amsa. Should it not then be interpreted as Guna Nuvad, or eulogy. This is answered as follows: by first redefining the question. Are these statements that Krishna is an amsa, taken from Srimad Bhagavatam or from some other scripture? If the former, then this third chapter of the first canto called Janma Guyadhyaya, the mystery of Bhagavan's appearance, is itself the sutra for all the statements describing the avatars, because it informs us of them and because all subsequent elaborated descriptions of the avatars made later on in the Bhagavat are amplifications of this first account alone. So, beginning here, Jiva Goswami is presenting a Purvapaksa to the concept that he's presented up to this point. Up to this point, he's presented that Krishna is Bhagavan Swayam, that Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan. Now he's saying, well, wait a minute, should he really be considered Swayam Bhagavan in light of all the other statements in the book itself? And in other scriptures, Puranas, that say that Krishna is simply an amsa and not the amsi or the source of all the avatars. So Jiva says, wait, let's, look at the, let's restructure the question and put it in a proper perspective. It's his first statement in regards to this Purva Paksa. This is answered as follows, by first redefining the question. So the question is, should it not then be interpreted as a guna nuvad? It's a, it's, a, it's a eulogy. It's just a nice way of speaking. When we're all dead and gone, they always come and say a eulogy for us. And it may over amplify what we really were in life. So perhaps this statement <laughs> regarding Krishna is kind of an over of who Krishna is, just because he was a sweet, young incarnation who played and had Leela in the forest with his boyfriends and his girlfriends. He was very cute and sweet. and uh, People just liked him. So maybe he was liked more than the other avatars just because of the nature of his Leela. So it was just a, you know, a eulogy. We just like him. I mean, the other avatars, what, a turtle, a boar, <laughs> Rama, you know, the, the perfect, you know, morally stout king, Dave, Narda, the Kumars. I mean, these are all nice, but Krishna's Krishna's small and cute and does a lot of stuff and kills demons and, goes off to a battlefield and fights and speaks the Bhagavad Gita, so maybe it's just a eulogy. Jiva says, this, wait a minute, if you're going to talk like that, let's look at this question, let's restructure the question. You're saying that maybe it's just a eulogy and that he's not really the umsi or the source of all other manifestations of the Supreme Absolute Truth, all other other avataric descents. He's not the source, he's just one of them. You're calling him the source just because you like him the most. Jiva says, let's look at, let's redefine the question. Are these statements that Krishna is an Amsa taken from Srimad Bhagavatam or for, from some other scripture? Where are these coming from? Where's this, where? from where are you deriving the basis of your Purva Paksa? That he should only be looked on as an, ums, as a, an Umsa. And that this Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam is just a eulogy, just a nice way of talking of the sweet young avatar who played a lot. And that all the all the great sages who who were privy to that those leelas they wrote about them extensively maybe more extensively in the Bhagavad purana because we look to the 10th canto and it's it's all about this one avatar the, no other avatar in the in the purana is getting this much he's getting the most real estate in the Bhagawat purana So then, in order to begin to answer this objection, Jiva first says and points out that at the beginning of a book, you establish what's going to be presented in the book. So we can look to the third chapter itself, the whole third chapter, as itself being a sutra, a a, a defining statement for the whole rest of the book. And in fact, he says that this third chapter of the first canto, where the different avataric descents are discussed, is called the Janma Guyadhyaya, the mystery of the Bhagavan's appearances. So, he's saying, the chapter itself is a sutra. It's the chapter that sheds light on the whole rest of the book. because it informs us of them and all subsequent elaborated descriptions. It's the preview you see when you go to the movie theater of the upcoming movie. So this one chapter is the preview of all that you're going to see in the rest of the book, all the different glimpses into the lives of of the various avatars. When they descended, how they descended, what their their appearances were like, what their leelas were like, what opulences they displayed, what powers they displayed, how much of their godliness they displayed during those descents. So these previews are all there in this third chapter. So we can look at the chapter itself as shedding light on the whole rest of the Bhagavata Purana. So we can look at the whole chapter as a sutra. He goes on to say, Furthermore, not done yet, it is observed even in other scriptures that a formal declaratory statement, Pratijna Vakya, a declaratory statement, is sufficient to overrule the many other disparate statements found therein. This is evident in the case of Shruti statements advocating the Akasa, space as the cosmic quantum field, is without origination. Anupati and other Shruti statements affirming the same of prawn, the vibrating and uh, well, vitalicizing principle underlying the cosmos. And others still, Nyaya, asserting various propositions that are apparently in conflict with the Shruti's own conclusions, all of which are overridden by Governing statements such as, by knowing the Atma, all this becomes known, and all this is the Atma. Therefore, even great scholars like Sridhar Swami have cited this very Parivasa statement again and again to dismiss other statements that pose the conclusion. What's Jiva saying here? What he's saying is you will find statements in the Shruti in the scriptures that say that prana is eternal. It's all encompassing. It's Never, it never comes to an end. Prana meaning air, prana meaning the the life, the life force. force. Here, that's why it was. It's very interesting the way these uh, the vibrating and vitalizing principle underlying the cosmos. In other words, it's it's that energy that the Lord glanced upon impregnating the living entities. It's before any manifestation, there's the prana. And also, akasa, which is space. The space wherein the whole cosmos begins to manifest. So this is evident from Shruti statements that advocate that both of those are without origination. We cannot find a source for that energy that eventually becomes the cosmic manifestation. We cannot find a source for, and there's not an ending for, space itself. Now, these are statements in the Shruti. Jiva's using this as an example for us to say that this contradicts other overriding principles that are also in the same Shruti that state that both pran and and space itself comes from Brahman. So the ultimate source is the self, Brahman. Atma, referred to as Atma here uh, in the Upanishads. By knowing the Atma, everything is known. All, all this is Atma. So he's saying there are statements in Shruti that, uh, that are contradicted by other statements. And they're they're presented as a truthful representation, that what? There's no origin, origin for that pranic energy that, from which the cosmic manifestation comes. There is no origination for space wherein the cosmos is manifested. You can't accept those statements, Jiva's saying. We don't accept those statements because there's other overriding statements that state everything co- is coming from Brahman. Or, as you would say, because we re- recognize the Supreme Absolute Truth in different features, the scriptures may say Brahman, but we say Brahmati, Paramatmaiti, Bhagavaniti Subjate. So, we can accept Krishna's statement if we go and accept Krishna's due, Bhagavan Swayam, that if we accept that, then they're all the same non dual absolute as established in the Vedanta verse. Vedanti verse. They're all the same substance, non dual substance. Some look at it as Brahman, some look at it as Paramatma, some look at it as Bhagavan. So, that's his first objection. We, don't, we do not have to accept all the other statements. He's building his, his objection to the Purva Paksha. He's saying, we don't have to accept your statement that this is just a eulogy just because there's other statements that would appear to refute Krishna's 2 Bhagavan Swayam in the scriptures, where Krishna is referred to as an avatar, as an amsa. Repeatedly, in the very book that we're about to read, repeatedly, Krishna is referred to as an avatar, as an amsa as a part of the Supreme. So what? Jeeva is saying. You also find statements in the scripture that there's no. you can't find the origin for space, and you can't find the origin for the substance from which the material cosmos, cosmos comes. You can find those statements. But they don't override the fact that There's statements in the scriptures that override everything that say, ultimately, Brahman is the source of everything, or Krishna, depending on the nomenclature you use for the supreme absolute truth. So in this case, let's just say the supreme absolute truth is the source of everything, no matter what your conception of it is. So Jiva begins there. That's his first. So much for those declaratory statements, vakya, that do exist in the Shruti regarding space, time. There's governing statements that are more significant. He continues, In this manner, it has been established in the view of Srimad Bhagavatam Bhagavata, Itself that this paribas is supremely powerful. Such being the case, then since Srimad Bhagavad overrides the authority of all other scriptures, as was already established in the first Sundarba and will again be established in this one, the learned recognize that other scriptures as well are to be interpreted Solely in accordance with this pari-bosh, I've already proven to you in the Tattva established beyond any doubt that the Bhagavat Purana is the topmost scripture. So if Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam stands as the paribosh, that sutra that sheds light on all other statements in the Bhagavatam. Well, we've established the Bhagavatam as the topmost scripture in the Tatvasandarva, so therefore this statement overrides any statements to the contrary regarding Krishna in the other scriptures. Their status is comparable to the agents of a king. there in this context, meaning the other scriptures that aren't Srimad Bhagavatam, who rule in strict accordance with the laws set by the king. The commentary is quite elaborate on this first subsection of the 29th Anucheta, which has seven subsections, so we're on the first one. I mean, this is this is a de- defining Anocheda because it's establishing Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam as the lighthouse for understanding all scripture. Period. It's where Jiva's starting here. Okay. We're saying this, and I'm saying this is overrides the Bhagavatam, which is the topmost scripture. So this is it. This is the lighthouse on the shore that sheds light on everything. If you can't see that light, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, all your study of scripture is not going to lead you to the appropriate destination. You'll never make it to the shore. You have to accept that part. this Paribhasa Sutra, or all your scriptures, study of scripture, according to Sri Jiva Goswami, who's the Tattva Acharya for our Sampradaya, Unless you accept this, you're not going to see the appropriate, appropriately the conclusion that's to be derived from all scriptural study. It's a very simple point. If you're not going to go there, if you're not going to come along with me and accept this, then there's no light that's going to help you. You'll never find the shore. You'll be adrift Forever in the sea of your own conceptions as a Gaudiya. Again, we go back to his Mangalacharana where he said, this book is for Gaudiyas. Now, other Sampradayas may not accept this Parivasa Sutra. In fact, they'll argue against it. But we as Gaudiyas, if we want to reach the destination of our spiritual aspiration... This statement must be accepted as the king. It rules over anything else that's to be heard. I'm just going to go through the commentary so it, because it is so well presented here and discuss uh, discuss it as we go through it. So it begins as follows. After establishing Krishna, as Swayam Bhagavan, on the basis of verse 1328 of the Bhagavat, Shijiva Goswami now sets about defining his conclusion, Siddhanta, in the face of the many apparent contradictory statements found in the Bhagavat as well as in other Puranas. This is where we begin. There are many statements depicting Krishna as an amsa of the purusha, while there is while there is only this single phrase, Krishna to Bhagavan Swayam, stating unequivocally that Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan. One might reasonably question, therefore, why this later statement should not be considered as mere eulogy, arthavad, If such be the case, then the statement need not be taken literally. This is the 1st purvapaksha Purva-paksha or oppositional view. The statement does not need to be taken literally. There's more statements against, I mean, there's more statements about Krishna being an amsa than there are this, there's only this statement that he's the, He's the Yamsi. He's the source. He's Swayam Bhagavan. All the other statements say that he's just an Amsa or something to that effect. This is like one statement by itself out there. So why do you give it so much significance? And I've been asked that by other Vaishnavs who have a different it's the day that Krishna, but be that as it may. We have a similar situation, don't we? We have a similar situation which Bhakti Ross brought out at the end. I don't think it was recorded, so we'll discuss it now because it's significant. There's many statements that have come up recently in Gaudiya understanding that we, as jivas, were with Krishna in Galoka, engaged in his pastimes. Those statements were made by Srila Prabhupada in his presentation, primarily in letters and private conversations with specific devotees, which for one reason or another, and we're as disciples, not really why he would say that. It's his prerogative as a guru to guide his disciples and give them information that will nourish and enthuse their spiritual practice according to their level of qualification. So, the reason he did that it's not me, not my position to question as a disciple why he did it, but he did do it. So he made many, many statements to his disciples in letters, in conversations, that you were with Krishna in Goloka, yes. Interesting enough, if you think about it, here again not trying to second guess why Prabhupada did it, but still... You could say, from the Western traditions of, of uh, Christianity, we have this concept, and he was speaking to people that came from that culture primarily in the Western world, because in the Western world, that's primarily uh, the primary uh, religious inclination in society, this uh, idea of, you fell from the Garden of Eden. And also, perhaps there's some difficulty for the Western mind to understand the the finer points of the Lord's non-involvement in material nature because the culture of religion itself in the Western world is primarily involved with a give-and-take with God basically more taking than giving, but at least God's willing to give on our behalf. So he comes and he takes all of our bad, sinful life away from us, and he gives us eternal life. It's a nice nice concept. It's certainly a concept that stands in opposition to the concept of the Lord really is hands off when it comes to the material nature. We make our bed and we sleep in it. It's not that God made our bed, we get to sleep in it, and then after we're done, he makes it up. So it's a different approach in the Western world. So I'm just giving you some ideas that may shed some light on why a a contemporary Acharya would say such a thing to a new student Who's never even heard of of many of the concepts of Gaudiya Vaishnavism yeah. and the deep concepts of, of the Vedas and the, the whole presentation. Let's get them in, let's let's get them in the purifying process, Jeto Dharpanamarjanam, chanting the holy name. As the consciousness becomes clear, the intelligence becomes fine, as the intelligence becomes fine discrimination becomes fine and we can start to perceive. But I'm not, again, I'm just giving you some ideas of why an Acharya would do that. So, But we do find, we do find that Prabhupada did make these statements. But interestingly enough, and what's a great parallel that we can see, is in the place in the Srimad Bhagavatam, the Bhagavat Purana, where the question is specifically asked. Well, it's not even asked. It's like hearing someone heard that Jaya and Vijaya fell and the audience is aghast. That's not possible. How could anyone fall from Vaikuntha? So in that very dialogue, where the question is specifically put forward, how is this even possible? And it is explained in the context of the narration of the fallen Jayan, of giant Vijaya that R. Srila in his commentary makes what I would call a statement, which is a Parivasa Sutra at the end of one of his commentaries, on this, in this very place where the very subject is discussed, he says at the end of his commentary, it is a fact no one falls from Vaikuntha. It is a fact. Krishna's two. Two. Fact. Same. Equal. Bhagavan Swayam. So, if we can see the parallels, He's saying this in the context of the Bhagavatam where the subject is actually discussed. Jiva Goswami is pointing out in the place in the Bhagavatam where all the avatars are listed and the previews of coming attractions of the leelas of those avatars is, to, is being given, this statement is made. So it's made in context. The context is similar where it's actually discussed, where it's where the avatars are actually discussed in total as one group. And that's at the beginning of the book. In the one place in the Bhagavatam where the fall of a jiva is actually discussed. This one statement is now to me that's also a parallel and certainly I would look on it as a pariva sutra that sheds light and on all other and supersedes all other statements that Prabhupada would have said contrary to that statement in the context. One might reasonably question, I'm continuing here from the commentary, therefore why this later statement should not be considered as a mere eulogy, arthavad. If such be the case, then the statement need not be taken literally. So which is to be taken literally? It's to be taken literally. The other statements are to be taken not as literal presentations. Or in the, in the example we've just given, the literal, it is a fact, no one falls from my cuenta. And all the other statements should be seen In context, they should be seen in the circumstances wherein they were presented. They're circumstantial statements. They can, they should be taken as circumstantial statements. If you do not take them as circumstantial statements, your understanding of the nature of Vaikuntha and the nature of Goloka Vrindavan, you'll never, you'll never be able to find solid ground in your understanding of having a relationship with Krishna. There'd be no lighthouse for you to find a common ground. You will simply be. Well, there's just no lighthouse. You were with Krishna and you left. Well, that means the spiritual realm has to have lust, greed, envy. Doesn't make sense. Love there is not unconditional. It's not a hetukya pratiyata. It, it all all the other statements just fall fall to fall apart if you could fall from Vaikuntha. You have no light whereby you could understand the nature of Krishna, his name, form, quality, or pastimes. All those things they just just crumble if you don't have the proper understanding. In In a similar way All of our understanding of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and the aspiration to enter into Raganuga Bhakti without the acceptance of this statement, Krishna, Stu, Bhagavan, Swayam, will not bear fruit. There's no Raganuga Bhakti to be pursued in relationship to the other manifestations of the Supreme Absolute Truth. This is the gift of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Read on a little bit here. Sri Jiva Goswami replies that this statement occurs at the very beginning of the Bhagavat, in its third chapter, where the purpose and subject matter of the entire book are still being defined. This chapter provides a summary of the various avatars who will be described in greater detail later in the Bhagavat. Sri Jiva asserts, therefore, that this chapter is itself a sutra for all statements regarding the avatars, encapsulating the detailed representation to come later. Then, in the commentary, he proceeds to explain this whole terminology, Parivash. And he first explains Paribhash and Parivas sutra in relationship to the Defining works in regards to Sanskrit statements, so it's a little detailed. In other words, the way the way this the whole thing falls together uh, with the works of different uh, Sanskrit uh, grammatical tradition, the scholars of that tradition, and how they uh, how the, the the language itself works. So, um, all this in trying to give the reader through his commentary a deeper understanding of the significance of parivās itself. So, generally, there are three types of parivās statements. I'm not going to get into all the uh, discussion regarding, you know, Panini and and uh, Kajayana and all these other scholars, uh, Patanjali and and all the sutras and how the sutras are are graded, you know, according to their significance. But know that not all statements in Sanskrit carry the same weight. But there's one statement, they all carry weight, None of it's not that they don't carry weight, but they don't carry the same amount of weight. The parivas stands at the head of the line, and then linga, and then we're going to get into directly in the in the uh anuchetas from jiva goswami, he's going to analyze all those in detail coming up, so we'll wait for his presentation and then we'll unpack it more. This is just like a preview here, but generally there are three types of statements. This refers to grammatical statements, Parivasa Sutras, three types of Parivasa Sutras. One, those that are useful in providing a correct interpretation of the Sutras. Two, those that help to in deciding the priority of applications in the case of conflicting rules, and three miscellaneous Parivas sutras that help to determine the forms of words. So, of course, the first two can apply to scriptural statements that would fall into the category of Parivas, not just grammatical statements or grammatical interpretation. Out of these, the third category of parivas is specifically to gr- grammar alone, while the first two can be used to understand and interpret scripture. Shijiva Goswami's analysis of chapter three of the first canto of the Bhagavat is based on some of these parivases from Sanskrit grammar. And then he starts with this. Brevity is the soul of a sutra, as understood from its definition. So, a sutra, when we say a sutra, here's, here's, the, here's the heart of a sutra. Those well-versed in the science of sutras affirm that a sutra is composed of a minimum number of syllables, is unambiguous, conveys the essence, has universal applicability, is devoid of unnecessary words, and is faultless in composition. Vishnu Dhamitara, Purana Elsewhere, sutras are defined as follows. The learned say that sutras are concise, convey the intended meaning, employ words with a minimum of syllables, and thoroughly employ the essence, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Not a lot of syllables. Fits, fits the definition of a sutra. Then we get into a more technical breakdown. Sutras are further divided into six categories. And the commentary points out uh, that in uh, the case of the verse 1328, Parivash Sutra, being accepted as a Parivasa Sutra. In this case, there was no rule prior to this verse by which one could distinguish the Amsa avatars from Swayan Bhagavan. So, in the literal presentation of the Srimad Bhagavatam prior to this third chapter, there's nothing where we as the reader could come, could form a conclusion regarding what's an amsa and what's an amsi, up to this point. So this this is is another determining factor. This verse now specifies the distinction. In the given list of avatars, all others are amsa manifestations of the purusha, but Krishna alone is Swayam Bhagavan. A rule such as this needs to be stated only once, and is not in need of further repetition, as we see in the book. Just once, that's enough. We don't need to repeat it. Shouldn't have to repeat it. It should, be, it should have had such an effect on you that as you continue in your study of the book, you see every other statement in its light. Pariva Sutra. That's how how much effect this statement should have on the reader of the Bhagavatam. Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam. Here I'm telling you all the different avataric descents and giving you a preview of all these different manifestations of the Supreme Absolute Truth that you're going to be presented, just a partial partial list but still all the all the all the manifestations of the supreme absolute truth that are to follow but of all of them krishna stu bhagavan swayam so that statement when you hear that should have had such an effect on you that it's the light whereby you're not going to be it's not going to be doesn't need to be repeated again and again because it was that profound. Here's a whole list of avatars, and then all of a sudden, but there's one God, Swayam Bhagavan. He is the source of all the other incarnations. So we'll stop there for this evening.
1: Thank you very much.